Hello, and welcome to Research Software Engineering Stories. This episode of RSE Stories is brought to you from the UK and Europe, in collaboration with the Society of Research Software Engineering in the UK. My name is Peter Schmidt, I'm a Research Software Engineer at the University College of London, and I will be your host for this episode. In this episode, I'll be talking to Olivia Guest, Olivia is a researcher at the Andrea Martins Lab at the Donda Centre for Cognitive Neuroimaging at Redbound University in the Netherlands. She's a computational modeler as well as a prolific publisher. Hello, Olivia, and welcome to the show. Let's start with your history and backgrounds. Thanks for inviting me. I was born and grew up in Cyprus. I've always had an interest in computers from a young age. I always found them deeply interesting. When I was around 15 or 16, I did um, extracurricular A-levels because we didn't do A-levels in Cyprus school. So I did computer science A-level and I think from there also discovered cognitive science and was really interested in that. Cognitive science is like an interdiscipline. So one of those is computer science, another one is neuroscience, psychology, anthropology, and so on. So it takes from various other disciplines in order to um, understand human cognition, human and animal cognition, cognition in general. While I was applying to study in the UK, I, or just before that even, I chanced upon a Wikipedia page that was about cognitive science, so discovered the the field and was very happy to see that you could go into this field from um, a computer science undergraduate degree. So that's kind of like a short bit of background on where I am now, which is a cognitive scientist in the Netherlands. You did get around quite a bit, so from Cyprus to the UK and now to the Netherlands. Where about in the Netherlands are you and what are you doing there at the university? So I work in Nijmegen, which is in the south of the Netherlands. I work at mm-hmm. the Donders Centre. Oh, just to be clear, it's the Donders Centre for Cognitive Neuroimaging. And what I do broadly is look into how we can use computational models to improve and test our theoretical understanding of human cognition and these kind of cognitive computational models are basically uh, they're implemented in code and they're basically our a version of our ideas our theories our understanding of how the brain and mind do things how human capacities are um, understood and we take the these theories that we have and we turn them into executable code and we then can improve our theories improve our models refine them collect data based on them use the data to improve them and so on so that's kind of the high level perspective on what computational cognitive modelers get up to could you give us a concrete example because i think cognitive science is quite a wide field and obviously our cognitive abilities are quite is quite a broad area. What kind of cognitive aspects are you looking at? At the moment, I'm actually doing something very high level. I'm looking at how we perform cognitive modeling as a field and looking at various aspects of that. So that's quite abstract in a sense. Mm. A concrete example from things I've worked on recently in the recent past are things like, for example, 
taking theories about what we know about how humans and animals perform categorization. So how we create categories, representations of categories in our cognitive systems. So a theoretical understanding of categorization and taking that understanding and turning it into computational accounts of that and then using those computational models to predict and test these theoretical commitments. So checking, for example, um, if the model performs in the same way that humans perform in a categorization task. So for example, a really simple example is you show uh, people various objects and you ask them whether or not these objects are in the same category and check that the model also does the same thing or that the model predicts how the people um, categorize these items, how we can um, improve and reform our understanding. Because if we put our understanding into code, we can then uh, formalize it deeply and then test it very explicitly using data and then refine it, improve it or even reject it again very explicitly based on um, empirical evidence one way or another. And by predicting, like, for instance, the responses of people uh, being tested through categorization, so they look at a bunch of pictures and see how they categorize it, and comparing that with the model, can you then conclude how cognitive behavior is being constructed, is being built? Is that the aim of it, that we understand which components in the brain and which components in our behavior actually lead to things like recognizing categories, etc. Yeah, so I suppose there's various ways of evaluating the models. I suppose that the general point is the kind of modeling that I do. We're trying to see if our high-level verbal-based understanding, so our theories of the world, in this case, of how um, agents perform categorization, have any deep explanatory and or predictive power with respect to obviously the evidence that we gather so you use the you use the computational model to mediate between your verbal theoretical understanding of the world and the empirical evidence that you will gather from the world so the point of the model is to do this kind of bridge between evidence that you collect and theories that you want to improve or reject or refine. Quite often we don't reject any theories, we just improve them or refine them. You're also quite a prolific publisher. I see that you have a number of papers that came out this year, one of which is called On Simulating Neural Damage Connectionist Networks, and that sounds fascinating. Could you give us a high-level overview of that? The paper is called on simulating neural damage in connectionist networks, and it's published in Computational Brain and Behavior. The paper is about the issues that can arise when we use artificial neural networks as a, as a methodology or as a framework. It's called connectionism within cognitive science and psychology. So when we use artificial neural networks to model neural damage, so things like lesions, Mm -hmm. brain and obviously these are present in patient groups so what we can do is compare patient groups with healthy individuals and behaviorally juxtapose the two in order to 
um, understand the effects of neural damage and the way that this is the way that muddling is used here is the same as uh, what I spoke about before, that mm. we use the, in this specific case, artificial neural networks, but obviously other models are also available, use these artificial neural networks to instantiate some of what we believe are the differences between patient and healthy groups of people. Because these models, artificial neural network models, are quite complex, they obviously have a lot of parameters in terms of the number of units and the number of weights they have, but also mm -hmm. in terms of how they can be damaged. And we carefully explored all of these different parameters and forms of uh, damage into pre-existing connectionist models, two pre-existing accounts, essentially, of neuropsychological deficits, we found that basically a lot of the differences between the undamaged and damaged models, a lot of these differences are very sensitive to specific aspects of how the models are trained and built. We basically are trying to underline that when we want to model neural damage, we need to be careful about the implementation and specification assumptions. Um, I think we could talk about this for quite some time. I find it very fascinating. But I would like to move on to another area and also to do with publishing, which is actually your blog, neuroplausible.com, that I encourage every listener to go to and have a read. And there are two postings for me that stand out. And uh, one is titled, I hate MATLAB. Let's start with that one. And the other one is called Why Women in Psychology Can't Program. So I think we come to that next. But I would like to start with the MATLAB one. What is it you don't like about it? Let me just say, before we jump into talking about why I dislike MATLAB, I make it quite clear in the in the blog post, but I want to make it clear here as well that this isn't about people who know how to use MATLAB, who know how to code, who love MATLAB, who are confident in their coding abilities. So it's not about those people at all. If they are content and happy using MATLAB and completely pedagogically adept at teaching how to code using MATLAB. And I'm choosing mm. my words carefully. So I'm not saying teaching people how to use MATLAB, but teaching people how to code via mm. MATLAB. Because I think in reality, we should be teaching people how to code and not teaching them, for example, just Python. So it's not, that's not a MATLAB specific issue. So that kind of um, caveat out of the way. What I don't like mm. about MATLAB is the whole ecosystem and pedagogical ideology that often comes with it or came with it up until recently within psychology courses that taught programming. Just to make it really clear, just to hammer home the point that I want to make, we don't say let's teach undergraduates Excel. We don't say let's teach undergraduates SPSS, which is a statistical package. We say we're going to teach undergraduates statistics. We're going to teach them research methods, right? We don't say we're going to teach them the tool. So the tool is MATLAB. And yet quite often we say we're going to teach them MATLAB instead of we're going to teach them how to code. And I think that really gets the, the, the heart of what my problem is, because we shouldn't be teaching people a closed source, exorbitantly expensive uh, software environment. Yeah. It's more than a language. It's an environment, which is not a bad thing, by the way, but, but it is. It's, it's a whole environment. And to access this environment, you have to pay. 
And and obviously there are, you know, there are ways around it, but they're only partial. So my problem is this, that it promotes this kind of very simplistic way of coding without any kind of deep, people are not taught in a deep way. Um, obviously mm. there's exceptions of wonderful teachers and people who've learned despite the weird environment or the kind of unappealing environment. But, you know, in most cases that's not true in undergraduates or whoever it is, students dislike dislike coding because of that, or dislike MATLAB because of that, or on and on. And I think that it's just a really important thing, and it just makes me upset because I think coding is amazing, and I don't think mm. anyone should love coding. I think we're doing we're doing a disservice, and we're kind of closing closing off avenues that don't need to be closed off to to undergraduates. You know, they 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 just find being taught very complex things like frequentist statistics, for example, that they, they fare just fine. They might say, I hate it, but they fare just fine. We teach them these things. Uh, we teach them a lot of complex things. So I think making an exception for programming seems seems uh, really misguided. Well, it certainly helps MATLAB. <laughs> but I quite like what you say that, you know, what we should be doing in teaching is to inspire transferable skills. And programming is a transferable skill or should be. So it's about the deep thinking, about the understanding of the actual problem that leads you to use something like MATLAB rather than sort of, oh, I need to press this button at the left corner in order to do this. Is that what you're saying? Essentially, yes. I think the classes that I have taught or helped teach that involved coding have only been successful when the teacher transcended or even ignored going for superficially easy solutions so exactly as you say i mean this is true for teaching statistics as well right you can't just be a button pusher you can't code or do anything sophisticated including obviously statistics by just using drop down menus or pressing buttons um that might be fine for very very simple cases but we're not trying to teach people how to deal with very, very simple cases. <laughs> we're trying to teach them how to think very deeply about something and actually understand it. And what's really interesting is that if you do deeply understand it, of course, in the very simple cases, you can revert to button pushing. But then you are aware of it. The other blog post that I saw was Why Women in Psychology Can't Program. And that's a very catching title, like I hate MATLAB, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Could you indulge us a little bit in that? What made you write this post? Yeah, in terms of the catchy titles, I think that's like, a, unfortunately, it's like a prerequisite to, <laughs> to, be, to be read online is to have clickbaity title. But I, but I also think that, unfortunately, it's true that women and people in general in psychology tend to not have very good coding skills. Let me just dissect the title. The reason I wrote women and not and not whatever graduates or people is essentially because of two related reasons. One is that most junior people are women. The second reason I wrote women is because what you see, so as as a computational cognitive modeler, obviously I in terms of, you know, my subfield peers, most of them, if not all of them, know how to code, right? The type of research that we do requires that skill. What happens is that the people who know how to code in general are more likely to be men. So saying why women in, in psychology 
can't code draws attention to the fact that for various reasons, it's going to be more likely that it's women who can't code. There's a lot of reasons behind this, but this is obviously true in society in general, in the tech industry. Um, in computer science undergraduate, there was only five women, I think. And this is obviously taking a very simplistic view on on gender, but it's it's unfortunately in many cases all we have, you know, taking it in, in this kind of like strict binary sense. Regardless, it's still male dominated as a skill, you know? So I think yeah, I'm trying to draw attention to this, spark a kind of dialogue with that with that blog post that I think worked very well based on the feedback that I got. So to answer the kind of question in the title, I mean please read the blog post because it it, it explains things a lot better than I can verbally, which is why I wrote it. But to kind of answer it, the reason is because we fail our students as a field it's not a mystery they just can't code because we haven't taught them how to code (laughs) and this is something again that I saw when I taught or when I teach programming within psychology that quite often we see these issues of like who is good at coding with the good being in quotation marks coming up as a concept that some people are just better. Obviously, some people are just better, probably because they practiced for years, right? But that's the reason, mm. not because of a, some other kind of weird inherent, inherent capacity. The capacity is they have practiced longer and or when they have practiced, they have received positive feedback. It's pretty much just that. And obviously, if you don't like coding, you don't like coding. That's completely fine. Two, the point is realizing that sometimes not liking something is not just a personal preference, but something that has been taught to you. I think there's quite a lot to pick apart at the moment. There is one dimension, as you mentioned, that junior psychology students or graduates uh, tend to be more women, Hmm. as opposed to computational scientists, which predominantly are men. Mm -hmm. So there's the first discrepancy. And then there's the way um, it's being taught, which kind of reinforces this bias that women can't program uh, or women in psychology can't program. Hmm. How do you think we can overcome this? Well, what in teaching can we do differently? In teaching, I think a really simple first step is to actually start teaching people how to code. First of all, very few places teach coding in general and then many of the places that do teach coding make the mistake of framing it around say teaching MATLAB or teaching Python. That's a mistake that exists regardless of the specific language used. One thing is to actually teach people how to code, not to teach them how to use a specific language. Obviously to teach people how to code you do need to teach them one or more languages. It's just that the the way that the course is structured And even the rhetoric of the course, what I mean by that is the way that you talk about what you're teaching people has to be phrased such that you explain to them that these are transferable skills. Teaching first order logic is a transferable skill that transfers directly into learning how to code. Things like explaining the relationships within and between the concept um, ideas that are required in order to code, right? Teaching conditional statements, teaching for loops. These are all deeply transferable skills. Part of the problem is that we're not even teaching people how to code. Or if we are teaching people how to code, as I said, quite often, they need to be reminded of this 
it sounds like, oh, maybe Olivia is exaggerating, but I'm not because there's so many cases in which, and I'm going to pivot slightly to a, a related thing that still answers your mm. question. There's so many times where I speak about the value of modeling, why computational modeling is so useful to cognitive science and psychology. And people say, oh, well, this is great. I understand and agree with you. And then they say, but you know, I, I've never really been taught how to do this or what a theory is. And the thing is, they quite often have. It's just that mm. they, it hasn't it hasn't been properly contextualized to them that, for example, when they're being taught human memory, that what they're being taught are theories about human memory. This isn't, I'm not trying to say that this is a, an issue that needs to be fixed just by being reminding people this. Maybe, maybe it is that, but I'm not sure. But the point is that I think quite often conceptualizing what we know and the relationships between what we know and other things that we know is just as important. It also seems there's an inherent bias in the way we present these courses, which is what you mentioned. So that kind of increases the threshold that people get into programming. Do you see that as a problem that we kind of reinforce in people, oh, I can't do that. I know how to use MATLAB, but I can't, don't know how to program. I'm not sure if people exactly say the words that you just said, mm. but I think there, there's definitely an element of that in an abstract sense, I agree. And I think there's also this thing where people, and this is very common in general, by the way, I'm not arguing that this is true for like MATLAB people or true for like people in psychology. I think this is a general thing where people will be very protective of tools like Linux people that are very pro-Linux or Python people that are very pro-Python. And of course, that adds to the confusion where you start thinking that allegiance to a specific programming language is more important than understanding some deeper, understanding how to code in general, or that in different cases, we need different languages. That's a fascinating conversation, Olivia. I'm afraid we're now coming to the end of the podcast. There are two questions that I usually ask, and one of which is, if you look ahead into the future, what do you hope you'd have achieved? I feel like this is a really hard question, but um, I'm going to say I really hope to have positively impacted people that I have or will have mentored. So I want to feel that like I've been a positive force in creating generation of scientists that will come after me. And also, I, I want to feel that I have helped center, reinvigorate the role of cognitive computational modeling. I don't want everyone to be a modeler, but I want people to be modelers if that's what they want. <laughs> and the final question, Olivia what do you do in your spare time if you've got any left? Good question. I feel like I have a good balance in my life in general with respect to work and non-work activities. One thing that I really like doing is go to the gym. I really enjoy mm. that. I find that very extremely relaxing. But yeah, given the pandemic and that I've moved to a different country, um, don't really have that many other things that I get up to. I enjoy going for walks. I'm guessing just kind of a little bit boring. That's also okay. It is absolutely okay. And I don't think it's boring at all. Well, Olivia, thank you so much for your time. And it was such a fascinating conversation today. And uh, keep on publishing. Oh, thank you. So obviously, I just want to say it's about quality, not quantity. <laughs> it certainly is. But yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show and we would like to see you again in future. If you like this episode, it'll be great if you could leave a review wherever you download your podcasts from. And with that... 
goodbye.